It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I am your host, Show, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's been a couple weeks since we've put out a new episode. We've been doing a lot of uh, action movies lately, funnily enough. It's, it is actually funny. Now that we're into June, June 2021, who would have thought, right? I mean, it feels like the last 18 months have been one giant blur. So wherever you are listening to this from, I hope you are doing well. And I hope you have managed to watch a couple of the movies that we were talking about here on the podcast. But it's funny, like the post-Oscar period in most years, because the Oscars are at the end of February, right? So it's like the Super Bowl, a couple weeks, the Oscars, and then you basically have all of March and then all of April to get out all of the crappy movies no one wants to see before you get to May where they start pumping out the big blockbuster releases, right? And I guess, like, the Memorial Day weekend is usually, like, the first big benchmark of, I guess, summer, quote-unquote. And then it basically feels like every week starting after Memorial Day, you get a big movie, essentially, right? Like, every week or every other week is some gigantic movie being released. And I'm sure that's going to be relatively similar this year, albeit a little delayed again because the Oscars were in April this year. But going forward, I mean, there are tons of movies coming out in the next couple of months, right? I mean, Black Widow, James Bond, Fast and the Furious. Like, I mean, I don't think I'll be seeing any of these movies in theaters. So the reviews, at least on my end, will be delayed somewhat. Even if I wanted to see them in theaters, I think Cineplex, the actual brick and mortar, uh, putting your butt in a seat store, Cineplex fronts, movie fronts, theaters, are still closed here in Toronto and I think across Canada. Less so uh, down south for our neighbors south of the border in the United States. I think you are able to go watch movies in person. I will not be doing that until I have my second dose of the vaccine coursing through my veins, making me as invincible as, as Superman, you know, the super soldier serum, I guess. Uh, that's, that's what I'm going to tell myself in order to re- resist from going back into a movie theater because I am deathly paranoid about... I, I'm deathly paranoid about, you know, like, catching a normal cold. So you can imagine what it's been like for the past 18 months. Uh, but either way, uh, we will be doing a lot of different kinds of movies over the next couple of months, over the, over the summer of 2021, one might hope. Um, in this episode... We actually will continue talking about some action movies. We'll talk about uh, certainly Wrath of Man, uh, directed by Guy Ritchie, starring Jason Statham. We'll talk about Zack Snyder's latest in Army of the Dead, getting back to kind of his roots with the zombie stuff. But we'll talk about that a little more when we get to that review. And Cruella, the latest Disney flick. Not an action movie, okay? Obviously not an action movie, but still a fascinating film to kind of break down nonetheless. Spoilers, I didn't love the soundtrack, okay? I didn't love the soundtrack, even though everyone else seems to really just be jerking this soundtrack off. I just don't really understand. (laughs) Pardon the vulgar language, but it's just like, come on, people. They're just songs, right? Anyways, um, we'll talk about those three movies. Uh, before we get to those movies, however, I, I did. I wanted to add this. I saw recently. Okay, um, I don't know if anyone here has ever seen it, but uh, Drive. Okay, Drive was released back in 1997. So not the Ryan Gosling version that you are likely familiar with, which I think came out in what 2011 or something like that. But Drive, 1997, um, directed by Steve Wang, starring Kadeem Hardison. And Mark DeCascos, who I think a lot of people remember from, like, the Master Chef stuff that he did for a while. It was Master Chef or Iron Chef. I don't remember if those two were actually things were actually different. I think they actually are different things. But either way, he was on that kind of, like, that like after I, I almost feel like he kind of transitioned from being an actor to doing that stuff because he was, and he was always really good at it. But 
after watching Drive, and of course he was in John Wick 3 as one of the, like, the main, I guess, bad guy, I suppose, main, like, action bad guy, let's say, um, he, I, after watching Drive, I don't understand how he did not become one of the most famous action movie stars on the face of the planet. Like, he was certainly in some movies going forward, and it was cool to see him in John Wick 3, but after watching Drive, it's just, he is funny, he is charismatic, he is attractive. He was a minority, and like I, I mean, maybe that that answers the question, right? Maybe the simple fact that he was a minority is what made him not a bona fide action movie star, right? I mean, hell, we're going to talk about Wrath of Man, and a part of that conversation I want to have when it comes to discussing that movie is how Jason Statham is a bona fide action movie star, right? And if you think about it, like the Transporter, which made Jason Statham a bona fide action movie star, came out what a couple years after Drive did, right? I mean, I want to say the Transporter came out in like two thousand and one or two thousand and two. And Drive came out in 1997, and then you got Statham going on to be an action movie star where Mark DeCascos did not. It just seems unfair. It seems unfair. That guy is awesome. He's he's so funny. That guy has comedic timing down to a T, right? Anyways, and, and I mean, look, everyone got to see him in John Wick 3, and I'm very pleased about that. But that's like, what, like 15 to 20 years too late, it almost feels like. But either way, Kadeem Hardison also very, very funny as well. He's excellent in that movie. Um, it is a weird action movie, I gotta say. Not your typical action movie. The uh, I think the, the kind of brief synopsis of that movie, if you haven't seen it, is like two two guys are put together by complete circumstance. Um, and I think Mark Dacascos, he's like he has like a prototype mechanical heart or something like that inside him, and uh, he has to avoid capture by the goons who put him in there by the evil corporation who sent these goons. And he basically has to, like, martial arts his way out of every situation. And through unfortunate circumstance, Kadeem Harrison's character is, like, along for the ride. And every time they, they think they're safe, they're just resting. The goons catch up with them, and they ha- they're they forced to improvise. Brittany Murphy's actually in this movie as well. She was pretty funny. Um, I haven't seen a whole ton of Brittany Murphy movies. And I feel like the most famous thing she is known for, unfortunately, is dying at a young age. But, um... She was very, very good in this movie. Steals the, I guess, like the half an hour of the film that she's in, which is pretty funny. And it's funny how the characters kind of barely uh, like put up with her. But it is really interesting to see Brittany Murphy in a, in a, I guess, like a, a period-specific movie, which feels weird to say that about a movie filmed in the late 90s. But there you go. Very A very fun, very passable action movie. It's out on Blu-ray now. I think it was released as a part of like a throwback era movie kind of thing. Like I think there's, there's a name for the... Um, for the like the the branding of the kind of series they're releasing, right? It was like MVH Classics or something like that, right? But uh, Drive, nineteen ninety seven, directed by Steve Wang. So if you haven't seen it, I recommend giving it a watch. Pretty short, all things considered, for an action movie, right? So I think uh, you would enjoy it. Um, also, funnily enough, as we're talking about John Wick, very briefly, Mark DeCascos was the bad guy or one of one of the main characters at the very least. In John Wick 3, Donnie Yen was announced to be uh, one of... I don't think he was announced to be a bad guy, but just one of the main characters in John Wick 4, which is kind of cool. So who knows when John Wick 4 is going to come out at this point because of COVID. But at the same time, it is cool to see Ip Man in a John Wick movie. I mean, we're we're going to talk about action movies and so on, and guys who have, like, martial arts and action movie bona fides. Donnie Yen has bona fides coming out the wazoo because of how, how, how badass he is in virtually every movie. Remember, he was in Rogue One as well, but, I mean, of course... Hitman, right? I mean, how can you really 
you can't turn down any of those films, right? So, uh, anyways, I, I thought it was just funny. We you, sometimes we get to news and notes off the top of the podcast, and this time a mini review for uh, Steve Wang's Drive that came out back in 1997, and some news about Donnie Yen as well. But we are going to talk about some actual uh, current movies, of course, right? So I mentioned we're doing Army of the Dead, Wrath of Man, and Cruella. So let's start off with the two action movies, and we'll get right to Zack Snyder's latest with Dave Bautista in Army of the Dead. Summer's Eve. On a train bound for Dover, met up with the camp. We were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns to stare out the window at the darkness. The boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, Son, I need a life. Out of reading, I think before we get into the review of Army of the Dead. And uh, has some great music, I will say that. That's probably one of my favorite things about it, as you can hear here. But uh, I do want to I, I want to preface it by getting into a bit of a discussion real quick about Zack Snyder on the whole, right? About his filmography. And let's be real, I mean, his filmography is not exactly particularly extensive, right? I mean, before the DC movies, he's only really made a handful of films, right? I mean, you go back to 04 with Dawn of the Dead, which was a remake of the uh, George Romero version, which was, well, I think it came out in, I want to say, like the the late 70s or something like that. But either way, the Dawn of the Dead remake that he helmed, and I think James Gunn actually wrote, uh, the two of them, I guess, sought to remake it for a modern audience, or at least a more modern audience. And, uh, you know, I think people generally agree, even going back to 04, from now that it was a pretty good movie. And I think after that, it's not a whole ton of movies before you get to Man of Steel, right? I think it was... Certainly 300. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is Sparta. You got Watchmen in there somewhere, right? The adaptation of the, the Watchmen comics. Uh, you got that animated movie, the, um, I forgot what the entire, it was like the Guardian of Legends or Legends of Guardians. It was uh, the, the, the Guardians of Gahul, the Owls of Gahul or something. You remember that? It was like that 3D animated, weird, kind of strange film. And people kind of bagged on it for a while. But honestly, it wasn't a terrible film either. And then you got uh, then you got Sucker Punch, right? Or, or Back in 2011. And then I think there was a couple of years he took off. And then you got Man of Steel in like 2013 and 2014. And it's funny, right? Because since then, he has only really made movies for, for Warner Brothers and for the, the DCU, right? The comic book movies, right? You got Man of Steel. You got Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. I was trying to remember the name of that film. It was a very wordy title. And then you got Justice League, right? And then, of course, I guess if, I guess we'll count, because if you go back just a couple of months, we did the Zack Snyder's Justice League film, which is essentially like a, what, 75% different movie or whatever you want to call it. Well, let's just say he has done four DC slash Warner Brothers movies, right? Even though Justice League is largely the same thing, right? But we'll, we'll give him the benefit of that. We'll say four movies for Warner Brothers. So I guess now that we can talk about Army of the Dead, I kind of thought that it would be more... Not necessarily a return to form, because I think a lot of people were, were looking forward to a quote-unquote return to form when it came to looking back towards his first ever feature film in Dawn of the Dead. And then you think, oh, okay, well, Zack Snyder's going to make another zombie flick. It's going to be just like that. And it's not. Not really, right? I mean, we talked about the music already, and it was good music, certainly, like uh, Sir, like Elvis Presley and other, other famous bands and individual artists, right? It was good, certainly. But what it suffers from is simply that you look at the trailer, tons of neon, tons of colorful, fun action sequences, 
And there's a lot of interesting ideas in Army of the Dead, but I feel like ultimately the main problem with it, beyond being maybe like 30 to 45 minutes too long and a whole bunch of different plot slash narrative problems, which again, I can hand wave away in zombie flicks, right? But we'll, we'll get to the plot stuff in a sec. But really the problem with this movie is that it's just not that fun. It's not fun, right? It just feels so... So joyless, right? So joyless. And look, zombie movie is not exactly the most joyful of movies, but at the same time, there's I I feel like there's like an inherent camp in these kinds of films. And then more so when you look at the kind of movie Army of the Dead was trying to be, right? So if you're unfamiliar with the premise of this movie, the premise is simply that uh, these former... I guess, I don't know if they're all, they were not, weren't all necessarily military people, but they all have some kind of, like, weapons experience. And when uh, Las Vegas turns into the zombie capital of the world, uh, the these uh, ragtag band of, of people come together and save a bunch of people. And then it fast-forwards a number of years, and uh, they are being tasked to go back to a casino, um, the Bly Casino or something like that, uh, and... Uh, steal or i guess retrieve because it's not really stealing they're being given the money by the casino owner but the owner is tasking them with retrieving 200 million dollars in cash and they could split 50 million dollars amongst themselves right and of course you like you, you would imagine for these kinds of movies the owner has an ulterior motive that none of the guys know about and blah 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 right it's not really important i think it's just that that this is a zombie movie also combined with a heist movie and then they go out of their way to have the you know like in any good heist movie you have the the characters assembling their team and with a bunch of colorful introductions to all the different members of the squad there's like three core members and a bunch of tertiary members right who like don't they don't really know and they get introduced into funny little ways and funny little sayings and all that kind of stuff hey and i'm not complaining right that kind of stuff is really fun for heist movies if you've ever seen the oceans 11 films i mean you know exactly what i'm talking about right hell have you seen certain episodes of rick and morty you know what i'm talking about um it's just there's an inherent level of fun and kind of lightheartedness that goes into heist movies um especially these days i feel like right then you cross that it's like it's essentially that i feel like someone walked into a boardroom somewhere at netflix and was like what if it was a heist movie but with zombies and that's essentially the premise the 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 whole concept for army of the dead and like I said, just so joyless. Like It's like the movie was trying to be eight different movies at once and wanted to tackle a number of different issues as well. And I just don't feel like it did any of them particularly well. I mentioned the length as well. The length and the plot slash narrative issues are kind of tied together, right? Because this char- the main character of this movie is Dave Bautista. And I mean, D- Dave Bautista is a treat to watch in virtually anything. I, lo- I loved him in Blade Runner 2049. I loved him in James Bond, certainly Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, maybe I'm biased because I've watched J- uh, Dave Bautista uh, wrestle as Bautista, I feel like, my entire life, essentially. Like, since I was, like, 10 years old or maybe a little older. So maybe I have a... Maybe, maybe I'm... I'm more inclined to like Batista than other people, just like The Rock or John Cena or something like that, because I admit I'm a fan of that era of wrestling, but I digress. He is the star of this film, and uh, there are a bunch of other characters as well, but I guess the one of the more important relationships in this film is that of between Scott Ward, the character that Batista plays, and uh, Kate Ward, who is played by Ella Purnell, who is uh, the, you know father. It's a father-daughter combo. And they're estranged, and as you might imagine, they come together over the course of the film. But before that, you learn that Kate 
is a volunteer at a camp. I guess it's a refugee camp for people who used to live in Las Vegas. And so they're like displaced people outside the like the barrier inside to get inside Las Vegas, right? And so there's this woman, Gita, and Kate, uh, who helps take care of Gita and her two kids. Uh, Gita, you know, Kate learns that Gita has gone back inside Las Vegas, I guess, to crack open a couple of slot machines or something in order to get some money to make a way for her kids. Totally, I totally get it, but she doesn't come back. Kate, upon learning this, decides to accompany her father and his band of mercenaries inside the city in hopes of finding her friend. Okay, I also get that. Here's the thing, though. They don't really have any urgency about this because, oh yeah, the U.S. government is going to drop a nuke, a low-yield tactical nuke, they say, on Las Vegas in order to eradicate the zombie threat. Because I guess zombies have largely been contained to uh, the Vegas Strip and, like, I guess, the outlying area, right? So most zombies, all zombies, I guess I should say, are inside this area. And there's a point in the movie where (laughs) they learned that they, they thought they had an additional day. It was something like there was like a 32-hour window, and so they were well within it, get back, get out of the city, get all $200 million, because, I mean, how the hell is, like, six people going to carry $200 million? Like, just in cash. That's a lot of just physical things to be carrying through a zombie-infested city, but either way, clearly they weren't concerned about that, Zack Snyder or the screenwriters, right? But uh, they learned via some news terminal in, the, in Vegas at the casino they're at, they learned... Uh, that uh, the president, who says the president thinks it would be really cool, which la- made me laugh because ostensibly this president is like Donald Trump, who was, I guess, president when this was being filmed. Um, and you could totally imagine Donald Trump saying that dropping a nuke on a city in Ameri- on American soil would be something that is, quote unquote, pretty cool. But I digress. <laughs> uh, so they learned they ha- they're moving up the timetable. So they not only do they not have like 32 hours, they have like 90 minutes to get out of the city. No characters act with any sort of added urgency upon learning they only have 90 minutes to get out of this city. And then on top of that, Kate, knowing this, leaves to go find her friend. And, you know, there's a whole subplot about, like, there are two kinds of zombies, the normal slow-walking shamblers, they call them, right, from, like, The Walking Dead and other movies. And then there's the smart zombies who are, like, intelligent and can love each other and are fast and, you know, all these kinds of things. And it's just, I guess... Oh man, I I just I guess like the subplot with the daughter was necessary to humanize Scott's character, Batista's character, but in the end, they like in the end the pilot takes Batista, Kate, and Gita out of the out of the city as the new kids. They are fighting the alpha male zombie guy on board the helicopter. Whatever they finally dispatch him, the helicopter crashes, and then you never see Gita again. You never see her again. You never get closure on that storyline. So what in God's name was the point? What was the point? Like, like, Kate's entire impetus for going into the city in the first place was to find her friend. And they don't even give you closure on whether or not this woman survives the helicopter crash at the end. Maybe that's the point that it doesn't matter. But if that's the case, that's just bad screenwriting. Because the only reason you care about Kate in the first place is not even because she's the daughter of... Scott, it's because she cares about this woman and their two kids, and you see them being sad, and she's a good friend, and all this. I just, I, I truly, I gotta say, I didn't understand that decision, and it makes, 
the entire, like I said, 30 to 45 minutes that they spend making you, trying to make you care about these characters completely inert in the end. And I think that's, that was my biggest problem with this because if they just cut that out completely, they didn't really need to have Ella Purnell cast in this movie. Or, or if they did, they could have her be entirely related to Batista instead of just anything else, really. I don't know. It's just I don't really understand what the thought process was there, I freely admit, but... It lost me a little bit, and like I said, it wasn't all that fun. I was a little bored. The other notable thing about the Army of the Dead is that um, Tig Notaro, who I guess is some kind of comedian, I, I'm being told. My, my roommate is a big uh, Tig Notaro fan. Um, and yet, funnily enough, I had only ever seen her on uh, Star Trek Discovery in a very limited role, and she's actually one of the more interesting parts of that otherwise unremarkable TV show. But uh, I will say, she is notable in this case because I guess the original actor whose name I forget was caught doing something really awful and they and he was he got rightly removed from this film and they needed to replace him. So they digitally filmed all of Tignataro's scenes and digitally added her into it. Which I found fascinating because you can kind of tell, right? Like, there's kind of like a dreamy haze around her at some points. But for the most part, it actually is pretty impressive. I gotta say, like, if, if they were ever to nominate, like, some kind of... If they have, like, some kind of VFX award they could give this movie, that would be where I would focus on, right? Because not, not that I necessarily think it deserves a whole, whole hell of a lot of attention on any awards, you know, at, at any level, basically. But I just... I really do think that the job they did with digitally adding someone relatively seamlessly is pretty impressive right like certainly the sight lines are off because i mean look like dave batista is a hulking giant of a man and tignataro is is relatively normal sized right so sometimes like their sight lines are off when they're talking to one another but i mean it's it happens so fleetingly that i don't think it matters all that much the other thing too is i i'm not sure what it was called but uh reportedly they developed a new kind of lens that Zack Snyder used to film this movie with. And as a result, like I mentioned that hazy quality, the whole film kind of has something like that. Like it's a lot of it is out of focus. Like a lot of it is, there's a lot of like out of focus shots that suddenly come into focus and very dreamlike. Maybe that's on, on purpose, but I didn't entirely love that either. I think you get used to it over the course of a two and a half hour movie, but at the same time, it was just interesting to compare the clarity of this movie to another kind of movie that is a, that's very similar to it, like another kind of zombie movie or another kind of action movie or another kind of heist movie, right? Um, but listen, look, I just I, it was it was fine, it was fine. I don't know, like a six out of ten if you're asking me to really grade it, right? I think I gave it a or like a or two and a half out of five, right? So I guess that'd be five out of ten if my math is correct. But it was just it was it wasn't very notable. And like, there was a scene at the end, or not even a scene, it's like a, a fleeting moment where, I don't know if it was Batista or someone else, but someone shoots a zombie in the face, and, like, mechanics come out of it, like, sparks fly, and, like, a robot eye is there, like, it's a robot zombie or something, right? Or, and then they kill the alpha zombie, and, like, blue mist comes out of its brain, and it's like, was that also a zombie? I just... I'm not sure. Now, allegedly, there's some kind of animated story Netflix is putting out to kind of supplement this, and... If, all I'm saying is, if there is, if they're trying to franchise Army of the Dead, I think they're doing a really poor job of it because I feel like their job should make you, should be to make you interested in their property from the get go, not not be like, huh, 
mildly interested and then go supplement it by re- reading a book or or whatever right like it's, it's not star wars or star trek or some some storied franchise right it's like they're trying to make this into a franchise and i guess maybe that's just a problem like a lot we have a larger discussion at a later date about like i don't know the commodification of every single movie into a franchise right like i don't i don't know that that's necessarily necessary really right i mean if a movie is good it should be able to stand on its own and if it deserves a sequel then then there you go right i mean look at look at what people talk about with john wick right like john wick should probably have been one movie and even though i like the sequels i can see the argument for that right i don't know i think people just see the success of things like comic book movies like the dcu or the mcu and they they think to themselves well why don't we have a franchise why don't why don't we have a franchise that's like that right we talked about the the upcoming franchise it would seem for tom clancy after without remorse a couple of episodes ago right so i don't know look army of the dead i didn't think i'd be talking about army of the dead for this long but i just i it was so interesting and also like annoying almost like it was like an aggressively mediocre film um that still somehow i feel like the bones of a better movie are buried on there like deep deep down under there they're buried right but they're there but uh yeah if you're i guess if you're looking for a way to like waste a silly evening or you want something gory and uh with like not a lot of shock value yeah sure give army of the dead a watch but there are better zombie flicks out there if you're so if you're looking for a zombie fix I, uh, I suggest you wait. Maybe there there will be other movies coming out in the near future. All right, let's move from one action movie right along to another one. And an interesting, an interesting next film, Wrath of Man, because it is a collaboration between Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham, though not in the traditional way that you might expect if you're familiar with films from the two of them. But nevertheless, let's discuss it. It's finally out on streaming. I had to wait like three weeks to watch this friggin' movie. But here you go, a review for Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man. I hear the train a-coming it's rolling around a bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling On down to San Antonio When I was prepping for the review for Wrath of Man uh, by Guy Ritchie, starring Jason Satan, I I initially went back to look at their filmographies, right? And for now, we'll leave Aladdin out of Guy Ritchie's filmography, just because I don't really think it has a lot of... There's not a lot of bearing when it comes to comparing Guy Ritchie's filmography to Aladdin, right? When it comes to The Wrath of Man. I mean, I guess we're going to do Cruella a little later on in in this podcast episode, so maybe then we'll talk about Aladdin and the Disney... Uh, remakes or reimaginings or whatever the hell we're calling all these different kinds of movies, but uh, we'll put Aladdin aside for now. But for Jason Statham, it's interesting, right? I mean, I I guess his I I think his more most famous movie of his early career certainly is The Transporter, and I dare say The Transporter is the movie that look, without that movie you would not get Wrath of Men, right? Like even if you had Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and even if you had Snatch, both of which are are great movies. What was his name? Turkish. In Snatch, I remember Turkish, and they called him Turk a lot, which is a uh, a really good movie. Dexter Fletcher, if you remember, he he directed parts of Bohemian Rhapsody, and then certainly all of Rocket Man um, was his co-star in that movie. Right, he was like the two of them were the two kind of guys go talking to Brad Pitt and talking to the gypsies, as they called them, and so on. But either way. Uh, even if you had those movies in Satan's filmography, if you did not have The Transporter, you probably wouldn't get this movie today, right? You probably wouldn't have gotten him in The Expendables. And his bona fide, his action movie bona fides, let's say, right? 
would not have been there for him to even have been in the Fast and the Furious movies as well, right? I mean, we see he, he is now part of a, a team with The Rock, with the Hobbs and Shaw, getting their their own, basically their own like, spin-off franchise, right? So, look, Jason Statham is not hurting for action movie roles. We're not, we're not going to kid ourselves here. But it's just interesting to see the evolution of the role going back again to the transporter. And, I mean, you think of other action movies that he has done since The Transporter. Remember, he was in the remake with Mark Wahlberg of, of The Italian Job. Um, I think he there was certainly a number of Transporter sequels. He was in Crank. Remember Crank? Uh, with, he played a guy named Chev Chelios. And then Crank 2, High Voltage. Man, I remember seeing that movie as a teenager in the, in the theaters. I think Crank came out in, like, 2005 or 2006. And... Uh, it was a fun time, I gotta say. As like a sixteen-year-old watching that movie in theaters, I, I enjoyed it, right? But it's funny because as how do I put it? Like as Jason Statham's career went on, I find that they like producers and studios realize that not only is he classically attractive, not only is he like he's unblinkingly whenever he fires a prop gun, he looks like a badass, right? He's also very funny. Jason Statham is funny, right? And they, they utilize this a lot, right? I mean, they, they certainly utilize it in Hobbs and Shaw now. They used it in... Um, remember they made those mechanic movies? A lot of kind of deadpan deadpan humor as for his Arthur Bishop character. And then, of course, Spy. Remember Spy? Which, of, of course, is a comedy. It's a straight comedy. There's no... You know, you can, everyone has to be funny in those movies. But a big part of what made that movie funny is that they used his action movie star status and turned it on its head, and even when he was improv- improvising things, he was really, really funny, right? So we we know, right, I guess the point is of, of the saying this is that we know that Jason Statham is funny, right? And Wrath of Man was fascinating to me because it basically threw all that out the window. Not a single smile is cracked, not one joke is cracked by Jason Statham this entire movie, okay? That's not an exaggeration. There are no jokes coming out of the character H. I don't think they ever really say what his name is. I think I think they I think they do say his name. His like, fake name is Harry, but I mean, and, and they shorten it to H. But you never actually really learn what his real name is. So we'll refer to this character as H. No smiles from H. No jokes from H. And I mean, it's a it's a pretty straightforward plot as well. Dare I say, right? I mean, the the simple plot is that H uh, joins a I guess an armored car service, a truck the a truck company that protects money of banks and other institutions, other like institutions, right? And uh, they hold the money for these institutions until they can, I guess, get to their intended destinations. And you learn that kind of through pieces, the way Guy Ritchie films it, is you learn that at the ver- you, you see the robbery that, that kind of sets off the uh, impetus for this film at the very beginning. And then you see it from one perspective. Then you kind of see it again from multiple perspectives as the movie goes on. And look, I really like that. I thought it was very creative. Um, I thought it was it was interesting to see what was going on inside of the truck and outside of the truck, and you're not really sure who was involved. You don't even really see the bad guys, quote-unquote, until, like, the last, what, 30, 45 minutes of this movie. And look, there's no, no problem with that, right? Action is terrific. A lot of really fascinating kind of gun gunography, right? The choreography and the, the bullet flying and so on of all of the, the various gunfights. But the, the character of H is what fascinates me the most because... He's, he is the protagonist of this movie, but he's not a good guy, right? You basically learn that his son was caught completely unintended, uninten- you know, wrong place, wrong time, firefight went down, and the, the son was killed, and H makes it his personal mission in life to, to right this injustice and kill the killers of his son. 
And through the events of the movie, you learn that the reason he has so many resources at his disposal is that is it is because he is a, I guess, it's not really clear exactly what, but he's clearly like the head of some really scary crime syndicate. Because you see him going out, killing all sorts of other gangsters in his quest to find the killer of his son. And he has a bunch of like loyal hatchet men who do whatever he says at any time. And he goes undercover at this under uh, armored truck company to find the killer of his son. And it's clear that he's like a bad guy. It's clear that H is a bad person. But it's funny, right? Because his coworkers at this armored car company are curious as to why he has like deadly aim. He's not afraid of anybody. And he's like... Like, you know, he's the Terminator, basically. And they never really explain why, other than to, I guess, leave you wondering, maybe he was in the military at some point, maybe he was a special ops soldier. But again, that's complete speculation on my part. They never actually hint at that at any point. I guess because Guy Ritchie makes it so that it doesn't really matter, right? He is a force of nature. He is the wrath of man, right? And I find it, they, they call him a dark specter at different points. And I guess that's the point. He's almost like a force of nature in the, in the sense that he wrecks and kills everyone in his path like by the end of the movie the only people who aren't dead are the people who are on the sidelines because he instructed them to be there like his his henchmen for example right i don't know it's a it's a fascinating way to treat your main character because he is very unlikable which is i think a hard thing to do going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this review it's a hard thing to do when you're your main star is jason statham right like you kind of i kept expecting him to make some kind of glib joke at some point a dry witty remark because i think that's what you expect from not just from jason statham but from jason statham in a guy Ritchie movie and you never really get that which i think is my largest complaint with this movie now from what i what i have been reading that uh guy Ritchie didn't write this movie he just he just uh directed this movie directed jason statham but someone else wrote this movie and apparently in the near future there is a guy Ritchie directed and written movie coming out starring Jason Statham. So I feel like even though this is the long-awaited reunion between Richie and Statham, maybe that other movie is what you really want. If you really want some some of that, ooh, that good old Statham humor with the Guy Ritchie slow-mo and the rewind, and you see, you know, the, the all the different funny sound effects. Like, just think of any scene from Snatch, really. If you want that kind of stuff, you're not going to get it from Wrath of Man. It's a fine thriller, I guess. It's just... The payoff at the end as to why they're doing it, why these bad guys, these bored soldiers are robbing armored cars. It's, I mean, it's, I think there's a larger conversation to have about, you know, portraying soldiers who feel like they were cast aside by their governments and they're now they're kind of get what they feel it's owed to them right that's i think a complete other conversation to have but in the in the context of this movie it doesn't really matter because you never really feel super attached to these characters scott eastwood i think is one of the characters uh one of the soldiers he's like the 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 final soldier who dies in this movie i i don't really understand why scott eastwood keeps getting movie roles other than it is because he is very attractive and B is the son of Clint Eastwood, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. He looks exactly like a very young Clint Eastwood. If you, like, take Scott Eastwood and you put him in, like, High Plains Drifter or something like that, I feel like you you get, like, a reasonable facsimile of, like, what a young uh, Clint Eastwood looked like. But the problem is that Scott Eastwood has, A, no screen presence, and, I mean, doesn't really have any charisma beyond just be attractive. Like, he kind of reminds me, 
Uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched 30 Rock. Remember how John Hamm was in 30 Rock and his character was incredibly dumb, but all the doors opened for him because he was so attractive. I mean, he ends up like his hands and getting cut off because he like was on a helicopter and he raised his hands and they get chopped off by the rotor blades. Like I'm not, again, I'm not saying Scott Eastwood is dumb, but it's just, he reminds me of that character who is so attracted that every door just opens for him effortlessly. And life moves on for him, right? Again, being the son of Clint Eastwood, I'm sure, also helps, especially in Hollywood. But it's just, I don't, whatever. It's just, I just, I find it interesting that he keeps on getting movie roles. Like Fast and the Furious almost seem to want him to be the new Paul Walker character. And they seem to, I mean, well, I guess we'll see when Fast 9 comes out later this year. But uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm, I'm not super high on the, uh, let's say, the film talents of Scott Eastwood. But either way... Jason Statham does provide some reasonably entertaining action sequences in this one, even if the general product is like a a, a, a less than thrilling thriller, I guess. Less than thrilling heist movie, right? It's fine. Um, I watched it. It's a, a decent, just over two hours. And if you're looking for a fun or, or a fine action movie to, to kill on a Friday night, then you could do a lot worse than The Wrath of Man. Just don't go in expecting your classic Richie Statham uh, action goodness, let's say. And finally, the latest release from Disney. And you know what? As I say that out loud, I realize that it's possible that Cruella is not actually the latest release for Disney because Disney owns, like, what, 40% of Hollywood? So it's a safe bet that any movie at any given time has a decent chance of being made by Disney. So let's let's say the biggest release for Disney in the at the end of May, beginning of June. How how is that? Okay, the biggest release for Disney, maybe the biggest release for Disney so far this year, because certainly it's bigger than Mulan, probably bigger than any other uh, Raya, certainly right, which I think still was a really good movie. But I mean, Cruella, I think based on the star power, based on how much money they put into making it, marketing it, and still coming out on premier access in in most places. So. I'm sure it's viewed for them as the biggest release. But nevertheless, let's get to the review for Cruella. Cruella de Vil. That's it. Cruella de Vil, Cruella de Vil. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will. Oh, To see her is to take a sudden chill. Cruella. Right off the bat of this review for uh, Craig Gillespie's Cruella, Disney's latest, I guess, what What are we going to call this? A remake, retelling, reimagining of a story you once thought you actually knew the details to, but turns out you don't, you dumb peon. Don't worry, I'm in the same boat as well. We're all in the same boat because apparently none of us knew what Cruella de Vil was really like, right? Which I think is really funny. It's not the first time they've done this, of course. Maleficent, of course, with Angelina Jolie. They've made a sequel to that movie, and I'm sure they're going to make a sequel to Cruella because a lot of people seem to like it. But uh, right off the bat here, right off the bat, before I digress too much because you guys know I love to digress, um, the song Cruella de Vil from the original 101 Dalmatians movie is not really in this It is kind of, like in the mid-credits scene, it is for like 10 seconds. And I guess I understand because this is an origin story and it's like that song from the original movie is about the Cruella de Vil that had existed for, I guess, some time in the, I guess, the lore or world of, of the original 101 Dalmatians movie, the animated feature. So everyone was well aware of how scary she was. And I guess because this movie is about this woman becoming Cruella, Estella is her real name, becoming Cruella, uh, I guess that's what people don't really know about her yet, so why would Roger write a song about Cruella DeVille? I get it. Look, I totally understand the in-movie reasons for it. 
That doesn't mean I didn't like the fact that it wasn't really in this film. And I think the, the large reason, honestly, why I didn't love that it wasn't really in this movie too much was because this is a movie that prides itself on its soundtrack, right? And don't get me wrong, like, I don't think this, like, the sound wasn't bad, right? It wasn't a bad use of song, right? It's, I, I can't even begin to describe how many famous songs and bands were in this. Like, the Beatles were in this, the Rolling Stones were in this, the Ramones were in this. Like, I'm sure there are probably, like, 13 or 14 other songs of really famous people that I'm not going to remember off the top of my head. Those are the th- first three that really came to mind. Um, but it's funny, like, usually soundtracks I, I, I love, and especially when it's a dynamic soundtrack like this, I, I really give it high marks. But I think it was almost, like, too much, maybe, right? Like, maybe too many famous songs were used, right? Like, maybe it's because all, almost all the songs that were used in this movie are songs that have been in commercials the world over. And if you've watched any movie or sat in any pre-movie show or watched TV at any point in the last 30 to 40 to 50 years, basically you would have heard this song a million times. Like, these are songs that are so famous, they were in like Rock Band and Guitar Hero. And look, that doesn't make them inherently bad. In fact, these are all very, very good songs. Come Together by the Beatles, Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, right? The, uh, the, that, that one famous song <laughs> by the Ramones, which I don't remember the name of right now, but if you hear it in the movie, I'm sure you'll recognize it as well. But let's use those two songs for, exa- by, for an example, right? Come Together and Sympathy for the Devil. They play Come Together by the Beatles. One thing I can tell you is you got to be free. Come together right now over me. Yeah, you can hear it there. They play this song, okay, as Cruella's plan comes together. Like, as they're kind of like putting together their massive master heist, their master plan at the end of the movie, you hear Come Together by the Beatles playing. It's like, okay, I, I get it. I get it, right? I, I understand, right? Or Sympathy for the Devil, which literally begins with the first lyrics of that song that you hear Mick Jagger croon. You hear this. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of will and taste. I've been around for a long Yeah, right? So you hear, uh, please allow me to introduce myself as Cruella kind of like takes over the big estate at the end of the movie and the whole world is introduced to Cruella DeVille. It just seemed kind of like on the nose, right? And I think maybe I'm reading too much into it because this is a Disney movie. It's a movie at the end of the day made for children, but it just really feels like... I'm not really. I just. I'm not sure what the right word is. It just feels kind of like they. They're like they insult you a little bit, right? Maybe it's because movies these days don't treat their audience like. At least I feel don't treat their audience like they're intelligent, and they treat their audience like they're a bunch of idiots, right? Like I always have that issue. Do you remember in the um, in the Dark Knight Rises when Alfred talks about how he would like go to a cafe and he would like sit there. And every day he would look up and he'd hope to see Bruce there while Bruce was presumably dead before the events of Batman begins. And he would like look up and hope he would hope that was him. They'd nod and they never part ways again. They never speak He's like in the in that movie, Christopher Nolan decides to show you that scene so that at the end of the movie, when it actually happens, you remember and it cuts back and forth between the past and the present as if to say, hey, idiot, remember this? Right. It's just 
that's the kind of thing I dislike about movies. And while the soundtrack was very, very good and a lot of really famous songs, that's what it felt like to me when they played Come Together as Cruella's plans come together, right? Or, or when they say, please allow me to introduce myself as she introduces herself to the world. That's the part, That's where I, these kinds of things lose me, okay? I understand that might, this might, might be viewed as a, too much of a nitpick, but that's my main problem with the soundtrack. But, but truthfully, the rest of the movie is by and large fine. I do find it slightly amusing that they chose like <laughs> dare i say the most unrepentantly evil character in the disney canon right like you got ursula you got jafar you got maleficent herself you got i'm sure i'm i'm sure i'm leaving out a number of other like another a number of other villains right like you got the hunter from the rescuers and so on like you got a, a, a number of really bad people but cruella deville's like driving motivation in the original 101 Dalmatians was that she skinned animals because she thought their skins would look good on her as clothing. That is literally her only motivation. She's an evil, rich lady, right? Like, that's the point. And they chose to, like, I guess, change some aspects about her? I don't know. It, like, there's a big plot point where it turns out, like, when she wears her dress made of Dalmatians, and I guess that's what leads people to think that she's a puppy killer, and I guess later that's what leads Anita and Roger, who are bit characters in this movie and have real no no real import to them, apart from their, like, tangential relation to Estella, the character, before she becomes Cruella, but yeah, it's just... Like, I guess the idea was that, like, she just used the, that publicity, right? No, no publicity is bad publicity, I guess, thing. I have a really hard time saying that word, by the way. But <laughs> uh, she uses that idea to, to become more and more famous, and then eventually she becomes rich. And I'm not going to bore you with the details of how they convolute her to be, go from rags to riches, essentially. But it was, like, again, reasonably believable, right? You suspend your belief because it's a movie about a fashion designer turned... I guess, evil fashion designer, I suppose. Um, but the, it's funny, right? Because the movie kind of like, I guess the movie really goes out of its way. There's some heavy lifting to make you believe that this woman would never harm an animal because whereas in the original movie, she like would, I, I always assumed she would kill a kind of any animal if she thought it would look nice on her. This movie, from the literal very beginning of the movie, this character, the young Estella, even bef even before, because the first, I guess, like 15 to 20 minutes is her as a little girl before it fast forwards to present day with Emma Stone in the main role. Um, as a little girl, she has like some kind of like Jack Terrier puppy that she loves and carries around with her everywhere. And then when she meets um, Jasper and Horace, her two like her two crime buddies who you again you see in the original cartoon, uh, they also have a dog, right? So like she clearly likes animals. It's just that she hates Dalmatians for a, a very comical reason, because as, as you might have seen on social media, Dalmatians killed her mother. Um, and they make Dalmatians out, by the way, to be like the most vicious dog known to man, right? Which I think is in itself really funny because of the context of 101 Dalmatians. No doubt Gillespie did that on purpose, but it's just funny to think about. Also, as a quick aside, Craig Gillespie, you may not have known his name, but funnily enough, Craig Gillespie actually did direct I, Tanya from a couple of years ago. Remember when Margot Robbie got nominated for an Oscar? Um, that was a, a decent movie. I, I genuinely enjoyed I, Tanya. And you know what else he directed? He directed, I mean, he's directed a couple other movies, but Million Dollar Arm, that movie about John Hamm, who's like some kind of baseball scout who goes to India and discovers cricket players. He's like, what? Cricket's a sport? And, <laughs> despite the fact that it is one of the most popular sports on the face of the 
the planet. And he's like, oh, my God, has no one ever had the idea to turn people who play cricket, who throw like baseball pitchers and tweak their mechanics and make them into baseball pitchers. And I guess it was based on a real story. I don't know. I maybe as like a brown person, I see that. And I think, man, is that racist? Like, is that a racist movie? I, oh, I'm not sure. It feels kind of like it is, right? Or like takes advantage of like people look like me. I don't know. I have a, I have an icky feeling about uh, about million dollar <laughs> million dollar arm and how it's like portray the whole white savior thing anyways craig gillespie movie right so there <laughs> there you go thankfully there are no traces of of a million dollar arm in cruella from either the soundtrack or direction or whatever because cruella is by and large a a, a very decent movie maybe i dare i say even a good movie right i i just think that the the, the fact that it has to do heavy lifting at all in the first place to make you believe that cruella Deville is actually an interesting slash good good being not like well-written character but like a good sanctimonious type of good character is kind of weird to me right her relationship with her two friends horace and jasper um are really interesting right certainly played by joel fry and uh, ralph walter hauser um, who also actually was in now that i think about it was also in itania right so there you go maybe there's a connection there after all um it was it like and of course i haven't mentioned emma thompson who is the the main villain of this movie who is simply called the baroness and Again, I think this movie really crackles whenever Emma Stone and, and uh, Emma Thompson are on screen together at the same time because they're both very talented actors. Um, I, I love watching them each individually. Emma Thompson in particular seemed to have a lot of fun being like cartoonishly evil. Um, and I guess like if you wanted your like like a Cruella Deville meets like the character that Meryl Streep plays in Devil Wears Prada, like kind of, you kind of get that there. You can kind of see where like the influences were perhaps when it comes to Emma Thompson's character, but she was absolutely phenomenal. Love her in anything. And I loved her in this one. Um, but I, I suppose before we finish up this review, we have to talk about the costumes, right? Because of course it's a movie about costume design essentially. And uh, Jenny Beaven is the costume designer for this one. And um, if you're wondering what kind of bona fides she has, She's done a really a lot of really fascinating ones. She has won two Oscars, okay, two Oscars for uh, best uh, best achievement in costume design. I think that's what it's called now, and before it was just called best costume design. But either way, she won best costume design for A Room with a View, which came out in the mid '80s, which I think starred, gosh, I want to say starred Maggie Smith and Helena Bottom Carter. Um, and I, I only saw the movie once. But uh, it's funny that uh, Jenny Beaven did win an Oscar for that, for Best Costume Design. And she won a Best Costume Design uh, Oscar again in 2015 for Mad Max Fury Road, which I think is really cool. So um, two Oscars for Jenny Beaven. So clearly this woman knows what she's doing. And even the other ones she didn't win for, I mean, a lot of period pieces, as you might imagine, right? Because that's what the Oscar loves. Sense and Sensibility, Anna and the King, Gosford Park. Man, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. And The King's Speech back in 2010, right? Which I think won Best Picture that year. So... This woman clearly knows what she is doing, like I said, when it comes to the costume design. And I have to say, some of the costumes that Cruella wears, they have this kind of, like, fashion war. It's hard to explain, but the Baroness is, like, a costume or a fashion designer, pardon me. And uh, she is gearing up for, like, fashion, like, award season, I guess. Like, dress, uh, I guess there's, like, a, an equivalent of, like, the Oscars when it comes to uh, fashion design, right? So she's gearing up for, like, award season, let's say, right? And uh, Estella, who works for her, uh, like basically has like a vigilante alter ego who is Cruella. And Cruella is like a, like the evil fashion designer, but is also like sexy and daring and is, like bold and visionary and all these things. And Cruella is making all these fascinating new outfits. And I gotta say, some of them are really creative. Like there's one where she's like in, on top of a garbage truck 
and as like, they dump the garbage out, like it's a bunch of garbage, and then they they drive away with her on the you know where the garbage men stand on like the poles on the side of the truck, and they drive away, and as they drive away, the garbage unfolds into the rest of her dress, right? Or like the kind of military looking one where she's standing on top of a car, she has like the words "the future" spray painted over her face. It's just all very creative. And again, I know I said we wouldn't talk about too much about the Oscars, even though we have in the last couple of minutes here. But I gotta say, if this like even though. It seems unlikely that this movie would not get nominated for an Oscar because it is made by a behemoth like Disney. I mean, if Disney wants a movie to get nominated for an Oscar and it's even remotely passably good, it will get nominated for an Oscar, especially a movie that is essentially at its core about costume design. There's no way in hell this movie is not getting nominated for costume design and, frankly, probably going to win, right? (laughs) You would imagine. So... Again, uh, I think it's really funny that uh, we even having this conversation. But uh, you know how we always say, like, book a movie X for, like, bet the mortgage, bet the bank, bet the house on this movie for this category? I think you can probably pencil in or put in pen, maybe, if you want, Cruella for best costume design. Jenny Beaven for best costume design in uh, next year's Oscars. But either way, uh, it was a really interesting movie. Also, last thing. Even though the, I, I did bag on the soundtrack a little bit, the score for this movie is written by Nicholas Bertel. And if that name sounds familiar, he's the guy who does the uh, who did the theme song for Succession, that HBO TV show. I don't know if I've ever talked about it in passing on this podcast, but I love Succession. I think it's brilliant. The theme song is uh, particularly good. Let me play a little bit for you here. And yeah, I mean, it's... It's fantastic, right? That the song is is so good, and they like bury it because the entire movie is like just songs they picked out of like a out of a Spotify playlist. It felt like, but anyways, Cruella, good movie. I don't know that you need to pay an arm and a leg for it on Premier Access, even though I find Premier Access is an interesting thing because it's not like Cineplex where like or or any other movie rental services, Apple or, or Google or whatever, where you rent it, you have it for forty eight hours, and then it goes away once you're done watching it. I think if you pay the fee on Premier Access on Disney Plus. You just get the movie added to your library permanently starting from when you bought it instead of it going away from a time. So I guess, like, if you buy it for, like, I think in Canada it was thirty four ninety nine, which seems pricey to me. But I guess if you buy it, you can, like, share your password to other people and let them watch it as well. Um, I, uh, I, just, I don't know that you need to do that for you personally. I do it because, you know, I'm a sucker for movies. But I don't know that you – I think you, you might be better served just – just waiting for it to come out on Disney Plus or, or however, because I don't know that it was worth thirty four ninety nine unless you're watching it with like five other people. And we all know no one's doing that these days because of COVID. So maybe wait for it to come out on the regular service if that's if you're really. But if you really want to watch it, there are again worse movies to watch. Fascinating visually, soundtrack just okay. Emma Stone, Emma Thompson, great as always. Although I wonder if Emma Thompson ever said anything to Emma Stone about her English accent because we know Emma Stone is not English, right? But uh, I digress. Good enough movie, probably the best of the Disney remakes, reimaginings, retellings. Um, And that includes the Aladdin movie from Guy Ritchie. That includes Beauty and the Beast. That includes Cinderella, the very first one, Maleficent 1 and 2. It includes all of them, really. I mean, none of them were egregiously bad. But I think Cruella was different enough that we can say it is uh, probably, at this point, the best one. That's it from me on this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Three episodes, a little bit longer. I know I went a little longer on this episode than I usually do, so I apologize for that. But uh, nevertheless, um, I hope you enjoyed it. We talked about Army of the Dead, Wrath of Man, and Cruella. Um, one of these movies is not like the other one, and it is Cruella because it is simply not an action film. But I'm sure, again, as I mentioned off the top when we talked about Drive and so on, 
I'm sure there are going to be plenty of more action movies coming out this year, right? Like, I mean, I guess technically James Bond is an action movie, and I, I would obviously say that Fast and the Furious is an action movie as well, but those movies are kind of part of their own franchises, so we'll do those maybe a bit separately. But any any movie that I think we can add to the discussion, we'll keep on lumping them in. Black Widow, I think, is coming out very soon as well. I think on... I think in theaters in the United States and Premier Access most else, elsewhere. So we'll add a whole ton of movies to the uh, to the docket. I'm not sure what else is coming out soon-ish, but um, I'd seen some trailers for some really wacky movies. Like there's, some, there's a new M. Night Shyamalan movie called Old. Uh, there's that awful, awful-looking movie called Infinite starring Mark Wahlberg. I mean, God, that movie looks rancid. There's that Amazon Prime action film starring Chris Pratt, right? I think it was called The Tomorrow War. It's just, like, Infinite and The Tomorrow War fit right in, I think, with Army of the Dead and Wrath of Man in the sense that I'm sure they're going to be just, like, I'm, you know, you know what? I was going to say I'm sure they're going to be fine. I take it back. Those movies look terrible. They look god-awful. And yet, I'm still oddly looking forward to watching them. Is that wrong of me? I... <laughs> I don't know. It feels like it kind of is. Like, it feels like I shouldn't be excited to watch those movies, and yet I am. Yet I am. You know, we had that conversation in, um, I guess it was both Army of the Dead and The Wrath of Man about the, like, the idea about soldiers doing what they can for themselves because they feel discarded by just society at large, but certainly the governments. And that seems like it's a running... I mean, that's not a new idea. That's a, an idea that's been around in movies forever. But that certainly seems like it will be core tenets to movies like Infinite and The Tomorrow War. So we'll have to we'll have to see if we can revisit that idea. Maybe we can get a guest or two. I haven't had a lot of luck with sound quality with guests over the last, I guess, like... Over the pandemic, right? The last 18 months or so. But uh, we will do our best. We will endeavor to do our best here. But um, either way... We'll see what the future holds, the near future. I'm hopeful of getting another episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast out uh, before the end of June because we're, you know, relatively beginning of June. And then we're starting into the rest of summer. So I'm sure it'll be a big, uh, big summer for movies. Hell, if you're an investor into AMC like I was, hopefully you managed to, uh, you know, escape that with some money. Funnily enough, I invested back in January when, like, AMC was one of the quote-unquote meme stocks surrounding all the GameStop stuff. And I bought, like, 10 shares at around $9 a share. And I I just was like, eh, it's fine. I like movies. I'll hold on to it. Why, why sell it when it gets to $11? What's the point of that? So I just held on to it. And a couple of days ago, I sold it at $63 a share. That's insane. I made 500 bucks just for, like, because I like movies, I guess, right? So there you go. Lesson learned, right? Always uh, invest in movies. I, I did the same thing for Cineplex as well. So uh, we'll see if Cineplex uh, recovers, um, hopefully this year, but sometime sooner rather than later, at the very least, right? But at, at the very least, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I hope you are all staying safe. I will talk to you very soon, but until then, have a good night. Bright light city gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up high. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there, and they're all living devil may care, and I'm just the devil with love to spare, so...